Right, good evening. Uh, I'm your chairman this evening. My name is Charles Goodhart, not that it matters. But what is important is that our speaker this evening is Stefan Ingvers, Governor of the Swedish Central Bank, the Riksbank, and also the chairman of the Basel Committee. And he's going to be talking on banking supervision, and he's going to be talking about making the financial system safer and more stable. And nobody, I think, in this whole world is more qualified to speak in this subject than Stefan. Uh, he first came to a real prominence, or at least I came to know of him, when he handled and resolved the Scandinavian banking crisis, particularly in Sweden in 91-92. That led him on to the IMF, where he was involved in dealing with financial crises in 97-98, following which he then came back be made governor of the Swedish Riksbank, where he has just started or was reappointed for a second term uh, a couple of years ago. And he is now chairman of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. He's been that for several years, uh, which is in charge of trying to set out the international regulatory system so that we don't have as many crises as we've had in the last few years. So we were very privileged to have someone as extraordinarily well qualified to talk on this subject as Stefan. So, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Can someone help Oh, I'm there? sorry. I forgot. Sorry, the machine, Stefan. The machine. I always, I, I'm increasingly forgetful. After Stefan has spoken, we won't go straight on to questions and answers. There will be a brief response by John Danielson, uh, the co-director uh, of the Systemic Risk Centre, and the Systemic Risk Centre has been organising uh, Stefan's visit here this evening. And so we have to thank them um, and the British taxpayer uh, for doing this exercise and an excellent use of tax monies, I might say. Uh, so, Stefan, sorry to have, taken, to have gone on a little bit longer. No problem, no problem. And uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to... Uh, to be here, and uh, I have dealt with systemic risk for many years in many parts and corners of the world, so it's, it's an honor to be talking about these things in a place which actually is called the Systemic Risk Center. Uh, hopefully, though, that you never have to, I hope that you never have to deal with the stuff that I've had to deal with over the years, uh, but, and I'm going to talk about why Hopefully, we can we can uh, come up with a more stable financial uh, system going uh, going forward, and I'm doing that from a Basel committee uh, perspective. And uh, the Basel committee is doing an awful lot of technical work within the within the field of bank supervision uh, rules and regulations. A lot of it is actually quite uh, quite technical. I don't have enough. Uh, time tonight to go through all the technical details, so I'm not going to deal with the plumbing, uh, but you can ask me questions when I'm through with this on whatever you, you, you like, also outside what, what I happen to talk to, to you about here, and I'll do my best. Uh, despite the multitude of plumbing aspects uh, that, that go with all of this, uh, that I can show you a kind of broad picture. So I'm going to paint with a very broad brush, and I hope that I can convey to you the key bits and pieces uh, of all of this, uh, stuff that uh, the Basel Committee is working on presently and stuff that the Basel Committee has been working on, on, on in, the, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the past. Uh, 
So uh, what I'm going to talk about is why Basel III, why is it that we have made it to Roman, uh, Roman III, uh, and what, what's the content of this thing that we call uh, Basel III in terms of putting uh, rules and regulations in place, uh, determining what banks are allowed or uh, not allowed to do. I'm going to go through some of the key accomplishments, uh, some of the things that we have done so far, and I'm also uh, going to uh, uh, comment on uh, the remaining, uh, remaining uh, work. And uh, when it comes to remaining work, I do think that this is a type of work that basically never, uh, never ends. This is like a muddy river that flows and flows, and it's winding and it changes uh, over time. And that's also because banks and bank banking sectors change over time. And our understanding of uh, uh, what's a good way of regulating banks and what, what is not such a good way of regulating banks also changes, uh, changes over, uh, over time. Now, uh, this time around, uh, uh, the starting point is the financial crisis, uh, the, the one uh, that, that we ended up with after the, what nowadays, what, what we call the Great Moderation. And this is just one way of describing this here in the terms of CDS premium for five-year U.S. senior unsecured Debt for a number of very large inter internationally active active banks, you can show this in many different shapes and form. And at the national level, you can you can come up with uh, stories that are not that dissimilar in many different uh, different ways from many different parts uh, parts of the world. But basically, the only thing I want to show here is that the whole thing ended up in a huge mess back in 2000. And, 8, 2009, 10, and then a little bit less than that uh, a, few years, uh, a few years later. And uh, I think that it's important here that we remind ourselves of the background, what you see up in the, in the left-hand left -hand corner uh, uh, and in the beginning of 2007, because then CDS Prima were very, very close to zero. So if you take that as a signal, almost no one expected actually these things to go wrong the way they, are, the, the way they went wrong. Now, given that this happened, uh, a lot of things went wrong, and then, of course, when that happens, uh, people sort of feel that, wow, this was bad. Now, what do we do so that it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen again? And that's the perspective I'm, I'm using when I'm talking to you tonight, uh, going through some of the things that the Basel Committee has been doing or, or is, is, is doing uh, presently. Now, uh, financial crises, they are costly. Uh, you can describe this in many, many different, uh, different ways. You can, you can measure the cost of a financial crisis as well in many different ways. And we can argue about how to, how to measure this. So this is just only illustrative. Uh, but one way of looking at this is to say that if you end up with a serious financial crisis in one form or the other, uh, it tends to show up in the form of a permanent loss to the GDP. And it seems to be very hard to, to sort of claw that back in, in the form of higher growth in the, in the future. You can get back to the old growth rate, uh, but, but as you can see here, if you look at the difference between the yellow graph and the red graph, and the blue one for that matter, it's very, very hard to... to, to, to uh, 
Do this in such a way that you can claw back the loss of output uh, when you end up with these issues. Here you can see two kings, one in, in the early 90s, and I ended up being the director general of the Bank Support Authority, so it was part of my job to sort out that uh, domestic mess. Uh, then you see another one in 07, 08, 09. Uh, uh, this time around, it wasn't a problem for us domestically because our banks and our domestic economy was okay, but uh, Iceland went bust, the Baltic countries ran into deep, uh, deep economic difficulties, and a whole bunch of other countries are still struggling trying to get out of, uh, out of, that, uh, out of that mess. I'm not going to talk about it at all uh, tonight, but uh, presently, given that our housing market is booming, I hope that I never have to deal with a third, uh, a third kink uh, when it comes to this, uh, this, uh, uh, this graph. You can find similar graphs for quite a substantial uh, number of countries, so there's nothing that original about this particular graph. There are similar ones that you can, you can find from many, many different parts of the world. And that's why we want to avoid uh, uh, particularly a systemic financial crisis uh, as much as we possibly uh, can. Now then, that brings me then to, uh, to, to Basel, uh, Basel, Basel III and um, what people have been thinking about uh, and what to come up with in order to avoid this uh, happening, uh, happening again. And uh, let me try to convey to you uh, the first first part of this, uh, which is really dealing with more and better quality capital uh, as a first step to rebuild uh, confidence. If you look at the, the graph here and the bars, if you look at this part called Basel, Basel II, you can basically focus just on the 2%, which is a core equity tier one. And in Basel II, banks are allowed to operate with uh, with uh, all the way down to 2% core equity tier one, and then 2% uh, additional tier one, and then 4% what is called tier two. Given that tier two has to be a multiple of tier one, uh, I concluded already in the 90s when I was dealing with our banks that uh, when you run into trouble, tier two is basically useless. Uh, and that, be, that is because when there is a lot of uncertainty there out there, it's all about equity. And that comes back in one form or the other. Now also, keep in mind, if you look at the 2% here on the Basel II on the left-hand side, that here I'm talking about risk-weighted assets. And that's important in this, in this context because risk-weighted assets means that, that they are always lower than total assets given that you also take the risk weights into account, and that means that if you were to express the 2% in leverage terms, uh, leverage, uh, the leverage ratio will be even uh, lower than, uh, than 2%. And that means that in this environment, it was possible to run a bank uh, with very, very little equity compared to the overall size of the balance sheet of the bank. Now then, uh, back in 2008, 9, and 10, when these, these, these issues were discussed in the Basel Committee, it was, made, it was very, very clear early on that, uh, that banks needed better quality capital. And then the name of the game since has been to uh, figure out how to, how to do that. And a substantial part, and the first part of
And the first part of uh, I thought I had turned it off. <laughs> Second try. My apologies. So the first part of it was to deal with capital, increasing capital in one uh, in one form, uh, one form or the other, and and that that is also what happened. And there, there was a, a strong focus on core equity uh, here, what is called core equity tier one, which is basically equity. And then the minimum requirement was set to four and a half percent. And in top, on top of that, uh, there was in, uh, there was a there is a capital conservation buffer of two and a half percent that takes you to seven. And then in addition to that, when it comes to what is called globally systemically important financial institutions, there is an additional capital charge on them. There's about twenty nine thirty of them of an additional two and a half, and that takes you to nine and a half. And then to the extent that um, credit is increasing above trend, there is, an, there is also a possibility to add a bit more uh, using what is called the countercyclical uh, capital buffer. And this takes you all the way up to, up to uh, 12, uh, 12%. And then there are tiny parts of uh, additional tier one and uh, tier two. So you can see here that the capital structure is actually quite different uh, compared to what we what we started uh, what we started out with when you look at uh, look at Basel uh, Basel uh, two. Now, uh, so that's uh, that's that's where we are. And then, in addition to this, these this, these are the minimum uh, requirements. But then, a number of countries have actually chosen to to uh, go a bit higher than higher than this, and. Uh, and or are already uh, at this level or above when it comes to Swedish banks, for example, we have a requirement of 12 uh, percent, excluding the countercyclical uh, capital uh, capital buffer. Uh, Switzerland and a few others have used similar uh, similar uh, approaches. So that's uh, that's where that's where we are now. In addition to this, already back in 2010. There was a discussion about the whole system of risk weights and to what extent there would be a need. Uh, for a backstop uh, in, in addition to, uh, to, to this, and that's the leverage ratio. So back in 2010, uh, there was an agreement uh, that uh, we would work on a leverage ratio, uh, with a, uh, on a leverage ratio which back then was kind of argued back and, back and forth at around uh, 3%. Uh, and what has happened since is that early this year, uh, the Basel Committee agreed on the first international, globally agreed definition of a leverage ratio ever. And it took uh, took a bit of work to get to that point. And the issue was uh, how to define total assets and how to deal with off balance sheet uh, items. Now. Uh, we are presently. We will presently get back to um, how to calibrate the leverage ratio, and I think that that will happen around, let's say, 2016, uh, 20, uh, 2017, uh, something, uh, something, something like that. And as you may be aware, in some countries, take the U.S. for example, when it comes to their largest banks, I think they have decided on a leverage ratio between five to five to in the range of five to six, uh, six percent. So I'd say that generally. Uh, speaking since 2010, the views on the level of the leverage ratio um, have changed in the sense that uh, the numbers seem to be going up. 
Where, where we eventually end up, as of, uh, I don't know, because this is a negotiation and a discussion that we have to go through over the, over the, coming, over the coming years. Now, in addition to this, uh, together with the Financial uh, Stability Board, there is another conversation going on uh, for large internationally active banks called GLAC. GLAC stands for Gone Concern Loss Absorbing Capacity. That's basically saying that once the authorities have decided that this particular institution, I'm talking about a large one, a globally active bank, is gone, then you need additional loss-absorbing capacity on the liability side, something that you can turn into equity uh, so that you can wind down the institution in an orderly way over, let's say, a year or something, uh, something like that. This is a conversation that is going on presently. Where it will take us, I don't, uh, I'm, I don't, uh, I don't know. It will take probably a year more than that uh, to come up with a GLAC uh, definition. Uh, another way of looking at GLAC is to say that if you if you talk about this in the European context, this is really about uh, uh, turning a bail-inable debt into a globally accepted uh, concept. And then when you talk about bail-inable debt, then that, of course, raises the issue how much, how much of it should you have, uh, what kind of ordering uh, do you use when you burn through the different, uh, different uh, buffers here, and how, tech, how, techni how technically do you go about doing, uh, doing all, of, uh, all of this. GLAC is essentially, or will essentially be designed in such a way that you can wind down uh, a very large bank over time in an orderly way uh, so that ideally governments end up, don't end up owning, owning the banks. This can be done technically in many different ways. One, one way of doing it would be to, to, uh, to count GLAC uh, in terms of risk-weighted assets. Another way of doing it would be to do it in terms of uh, leverage ratio exposures. Uh, and another way of doing it in, in turn would be to do it uh, with some measure of, of, of li liabilities. An easy way of thinking about GLAC is to say that it's kind of a type of tier two capital if you go back to Basel, uh, Basel II, and that means that if GLAC is added, then you add something more to core equity tier one, and that should essentially, you know, hopefully over time, make the whole system, uh, system safer. Now, in addition, in addition to this, uh, the Basel Committee has also set quantitative requirements on uh, liquidity. And there are, two parts, uh, there are two parts to that. The first one is there's this thing called the liquidity coverage ratio. And the liquidity coverage ratio is a, if you set the details aside, it's a very, very simple measure. It, it, it basically says, you should have enough money to last you for 30 days. That's the, that's the core of the liquidity coverage ratio. And to come up with that kind of a ratio, you need to define high quality liquid assets. And that's uh, quite complex because people have different views on what a high quality liquid asset is, and it also differs in different parts of the world. And then you have to make certain assumptions about the net cash flow you have during 30 days. And then basically you said, you, basically this measure says that you should have enough cash on hand to last you for 30 days. And then you can say, well, 30 days, that's not very much. 
But if you, in hind, with hindsight, if you look at what happened to some of the banks that went under, they had much less capital, much less um, liquid assets uh, than uh, uh, than that. What is remarkable, and and uh, Professor Goodhart, he knows all about this because he he has written a thick book on the history of the Basel Committee. That it took 40 years for the Basel Committee to discuss liquidity back and forth, and for some periods the whole issue of liquidity was more or less buried until we got to a point where we actually ended up with the liquidity coverage, uh, uh, coverage ratio. Now, in addition to that, uh, presently we are working on what is called a net stable funding ratio, which is dealing with long-term funding of banks. And it's basically saying that uh, uh, you should use your available sta stable funding, what you have on the liability side, in such a way that, uh, that uh, you have more available, uh, available stable funding than what you have required stable funding. Required stable funding here is what you have on the, uh, on the, on, on the asset side. And just to give you an example, suppose for the sake of the argument that you have a lot of mortgages on your balance sheet, then it wouldn't be so good to, f to fund those mortgage mortgages in the overnight market, uh, so you would need uh, more long-term available, uh, available stable funding for, for that. Another way of thinking about the net stable funding ratio is to say that it's a kind of a weighted duration measure uh, where uh, it requires the, re the, the available stable funding should have a duration which is longer than the required stable uh, funding that, that, you, uh, that you need. Uh, we're presently discussing how to do this, how to put this together, and if everything runs on track, as I hope it will, uh, we hope to have finished the NSFR discussions within the committee in the course of the fall, and that means that the NSFR should be done uh, sometime uh, towards the end of the uh, towards the end of the year. Now, uh, let me illustrate to you a little bit what how you what these measures are all about and how you can define a bank or a banking sector in terms of the measures that I have just uh, talked about. And I just use, I use, uh, I use the Swedish banking sector as, as an example, but you can actually do this for any country. So uh, there are three additional measures uh, in addition to the capital uh, measure. And this is what it, uh, this is what it looks like. Uh, you have the core equity tier one requirement. In my, my case, it happens to be 12%. You have the liquidity coverage ratio, which has to be 100%. And you have the net stable funding ratio, uh, which has to be 100% or more. And you have the leverage ratio, which hasn't been decided yet in terms of the level. So here it's just 3% uh, uh, for illustrative uh, purposes. So basically, if you're a bank in the future, the name of the game is not to be inside the box. That's a bad thing. And then bad things are supposed to happen to you. It's not harder than that. Now, uh, let's take a look at uh, Swedish banks where they were. And I'm talking about the, 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 the four major, major banks in our uh, system, the really large ones. This is where they were in the first quarter of 2011. As you can see, the LCR is below 100%. The NSFR is way below 100%. Core equity tier one is around 12, that's fine, and the leverage ratio is, let's say, around uh, 
So that's, uh, that's, where, they, uh, that's where they were. Now let's go to the fourth quarter in uh, 2013. Uh, this is what the, 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 the picture looks like then. The banks have increased their LCR substantially. The leverage ratio is unchanged, basically, and core equity tier one is uh, way above uh, 12%, and the NSFR still doesn't look very good. Now, what has happened here? How come core equity tier one went up when leverage stayed the same? Well, that's because the risk weights went down. And I'll get back to, I'll get back to that in a, in a, in, in a few uh, minutes. Also, when you look at the liquidity coverage ratio uh, for our banks, most of that is actually euros and dollars because there is an excess supply of liquid assets in euros and dollars. But if you were to look at the liquidity coverage ratio defined in Swedish kroner, it is way below uh, 100%. And on, the, on our side, on the central bank side, we have said that that's not acceptable. And we have suggested to our supervisors, we don't have supervision, that it should be as a minimum at least uh, 60%. So this is what it looks like, and this is, uh, this is how you can define banking systems in any country in the future in terms of these uh, measures that, that are used by the, uh, by the Basel uh, Committee. So this is kind of the, the, a summary measure of defining what, uh, describing what banks uh, uh, look like. So, so much about the technical aspects of this. Let me describe now a few other things that we have been up to uh, lately. And uh, the first, this has to do with strengthened supervisory frameworks. There's this document called the Basel Core Principles of Supervision. And they're about 10, 15 years old. They were revised in 2012 in, in order to incorporate lessons from the crisis. And uh, they hi highlighted the need for greater supervisory intensity and the importance of taking preemptive actions to address uh, systemic risk. Now, preemptive action is easy to say, but very hard to do. Because that's the supervisory version of taking away the punch bowl before the party gets going. And that upsets the banks and many others uh, as well. Uh, but that is what you need to do in order to make these uh, systems uh, work. In addition to this, uh, we have also published a number of papers on data aggregation principles. And this is, it sounds highly technical, it's quite important because if you have a large bank which is globally active, eventually if things turn sour, you need to understand what positions you have and then you need to understand what, what assets and liability you have when you aggregate all of them so that you can fully understand what's going on. Uh, we have written and published on supervisory colleges because the more cross-border banking you have, the more supervisory colleges you end up with and the more complex they tend to get, which is really an issue in London because you have so many banks there and in some in instances uh, you are the home supervisor is in London and in a large number of other instances uh, London happens to be host to many, many banks. And this creates actually quite complex structures when it comes to doing, doing with, de dealing with this. The perennial issue dealing with weak banks. How do you, how do you wind them up? How do you define assets, li liabilities? How do you deal with all those, uh, all those issues? 
And this is basically also equivalent to what is called the asset quality review that's going on in, in, in Europe uh, presently. We, we have written on sound capital planning, looking, looking forward-looking capital planning in such a way that you don't wake up one morning and find yourself all of a sudden uh, with, with not enough capital. And on the issue of external and in, internal audits, uh, audits of, uh, of banks. So uh, this looks, uh, looks good, but there are many, many more things that need to be done uh, because the Boston 3 package and related reforms address the shortcomings, but there, we, we need to do more. As I said, we have to finalize the net stable funding ratio. We're also presently working on revisions to the securitization, frame, securitization framework. Uh, this has been a long-standing issue. We have published many papers on this, and there's been many, many comments uh, from, from, from banks and others on how to, how to do this. Uh, uh, as you are aware, securitization wasn't all that successful always uh, during the financial crisis. It produced uh, larger problems in different parts of the world. Well, on the other hand, there are certain types of securitizations that weren't that dangerous after all. I mentioned the GLAC already, gone concern loss absorbing capital, so here we have more to do. Uh, but in addition to, do, in addition to this, we have found, and this has been extensively discussed in the past few years, uh, that the regulation only works if it is consistently implemented. So it's not enough to have all this stuff on the books. Uh, and it's not enough to agree in Basel what to do and what not to do, but not really to deliver in terms of you in terms of actually also producing a change on the ground. And here we have found unacceptably large variations in the calculation of the risk-weighted assets, and this holds bo both across a global sample when when you look at many banks in different parts uh, of the world, but it also holds as well when it comes to uh, 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 at the national level. And what this really means is that you can have two banks holding roughly the same type of portfolio and, uh, and uh, if they use very different methods for calculating the risk weights, you can still end up with uh, different capital, capital requirements. And let me, let me just uh, show to you one very simple example, and this is probably, a, 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 this is just illustrative, so it's an oversimplification. But it's just to drive, drive home the point. Suppose for the sake of the argument that we have two banks, A and B, and, and they have uh, roughly, they hold roughly the same portfolio, but bank A has very low risk weights and bank B has high risk weights. Now in the bank A case, given that the risk weights are low, the capital requirement ends up being 7%. Uh, and in the case of high risk weights, then you end up being below 4%. So in that sense, this really matters when it comes to particularly the minimum uh, requirement. And here, lack of comparability undermines uh, basically the credibility of the capital ratios. And it also actually hampers recovery in the banking sector if you have, uh, if you have problems in the banking sector. Because what happens if you can't really understand what's going on and how, how to compare different banks, then the whole banking sector actually ends up uh, under a cloud. And when that happens, if you cannot understand whether bank, uh, 
you cannot understand the difference uh, between different banks because you don't understand how the risk weights are calculated and you don't understand how the risk weights are reported, then people tend to be suspicious and that produces all sorts of difficulties for, uh, for the banking sector as a whole. And here, actually, I think it's fair to say that, uh, that the risk weight system has uh, lost credibility in the past few years and that we need to make quite an effort uh, to correct this. Because if that does not happen, then we will slowly drift into other, other ways of uh, determining uh, how much capital banks uh, are supposed to hold. So, so much about risk weights, which is a key issue. But also, as I started out uh, saying uh, earlier, implementation in, in addition to that is, uh, it is, is, is key. What is absolutely remarkable when it comes to implementation is that this is very new on the side of the Basel Committee to actually go to countries and check to what extent they implement or not. It used to be in the old days that it was considered to be too intrusive to go and check whether they actually did what they promised in Basel that they would do. Uh, so this has only been going on for a couple of years. Uh, how to look at, uh, look at this, and it's dealing with the consistency of national regulations and the delivery of comparable outcomes, particularly when it comes to, uh, comes to risk weights. So far, we have almost 100% uh, concentrated on, on, on capital and the capital requirements, and that, that is because we have been negotiating the, 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 the LCR, and the NSFR, and we will later settle on the level of, level of the uh, leverage ratio. So, uh, then uh, what we have done is that we have put together uh, a system called the Regulatory Compliance Assessment Program, which is an, is a, essentially means that we put together teams of experts uh, that go to countries and they take a look. We have completed uh, seven of these assessments so far, and by the way, they are publicly available if you, want to, if you want to read these things. We have done Japan, Singapore, Switzerland, China, Brazil, Austria, Australia, and Canada. And if, if you look at the changes that were made as part of the assessment process, uh, over 200 uh, changes and amendments have been made when, when some of these countries were not quite in compliance with uh, this uh, document that is called the rules text uh, that defines uh, what Basel III actually at the technical level uh, looks, looks like. Presently, we're working on the EU, the US, Mexico, and, um, and, and Hong Kong, and we hope to publish uh, the US and the EU assessments in the course of the, in the, course of the fall. Before the end of 2015, we'll do another four, India, South Africa, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And by the end of 2016, we will be through the whole, uh, the whole lot. And, but then I'm only talking about the Basel Committee member countries and jurisdictions. The IMF has, I think it's 185 member countries or something like that. So there are very, very large parts of the world they are not really included in this uh, in this uh, uh, at, at, at all. So it will uh, it will take forever if we want to do the assessments in the whole world. And by then, we're probably into Basel four, five, or six. So so this will this will go this will just go on and on and on and on. In addition to this, because I also alluded to the work in Basel 
similar to a muddy river that, that flows slowly, once in a while we need to assess the capital framework and its effectiveness against the, the objectives uh, that we have set for ourselves. And that is, uh, we want these systems to be simple, transparent, risk-sensitive, and comparable. Now, if that is really the case, uh, time, will, uh, time will tell. And that means that once in a while we need to take, uh, take stock of the whole thing and ask ourselves, did we end up where we wanted to uh, end up? And this is a kind of a long-term project that we should do periodically. And this holds particularly uh, when implementation matures and uh, when banks and markets also evolve. Because when you do these things, when you negotiate these things at the global level, there is no way ex ante of knowing whether these things will work the way they were, they were intended or not. So in that sense, uh, there is a perennial need to discuss these things and make a few uh, adjustments uh, here and there. So uh, then let me conclude. Uh, Basel III has targeted the key weaknesses that were in identified by the crisis. Uh, some of these weaknesses had actually been around for a long time, so you can, you can also go back in time and find them before uh, the crisis that we went through a few years ago. First one, the most important one probably, is dealing with the quality and the level of capital. Uh, the second one is dealing with unstable funding profiles, the LCR and the NSFR. Third one is dealing with weaknesses in risk management and supervision, how you actually go about doing these things. Third issue is to look into to what extent uh, all of this is uh, consistently implemented uh, all, over the, all over the world. Now what we need to do in addition to finalize the job is to finalize the outstanding regula regulatory reforms that I talked about. We need to continue the implementation and the monitoring of all of this. And it's important that we do this in a uh, transparent way so that all of this is uh, publicly available. So that those who, who are interested in this type of work can look at what comes out of it. And we need to uh, seriously address the problem of uh, unwarranted uh, risk-weighted assets uh, variability because if you can choose, if there's a perception out there that you can choose the risk weights on your own in a way that is uh, most favorable to yourself as a bank, uh, then we do have a problem and we need to discuss and we will discuss uh, probably for many years to come how to deal with that issue so that we regain credibility to the RWA uh, system. Let me also finally finish with, with a general reflection of mine saying that I've talked about various constraints that um, are imposed on the banks when they run their banking business. What that really means when you talk about this in terms of uh, capital and the other constraints is that there basically is a kind of a trade-off between these constraints. The lower the capital requirement, the higher the likelihood that you add more and more constraints on what banks are allowed or not allowed to do. The higher the capital requirements, uh, the low, then the more liberal you can be when it comes to what banks are allowed or not allowed to do. But how to find a reasonable trade-off, uh, that's, not, that's not so easy, and that's really for the future 
since uh, when it comes to the LCR, the NSFR, and the leverage ratio, they haven't really been uh, uh, finished yet in the sense that uh, all the banks all over the world have to uh, comply with them. Uh, because there is also an element of gradualism to all of this when the banks have to adjust to this until, let's say, 2018, 2019, 2020. I actually carry with me a PowerPoint slide with all the different implementation dates because I can't remember them myself because there are so many of them. But I'm not going to show that one to you. Thank you. Right, John Danielson will now give a short response. Stefan has one of the most important and difficult jobs in the world. How can we declaw the financial system and simultaneously allow the financiers enough room to participate in economic growth? Now, this balance between safety and risk-taking has always been and will always be a key challenge to regulators, and invariably, no matter what they do, they will be criticized. Now, I can hardly think of a better pedigree for the job than that of Stefan. He had the oldest central bank in the world, one that easily predates the startup down the road by a good half a century. The Riksbank has an impressive record in monetary policy and did set the gold standard for its crisis response in the early 1990s. Stefan therefore had an institution with an institutional memory and reputation for successfully handling the two main tasks of central banks, monetary policy, and financial stability. Now, this, this dual experience is needed because the Basel Committee faces difficult challenges when, it, when designing the post-crisis regulatory system. The banking system in each country is unique. It reflects the country's economic and political history, and we can see this by looking at the frequency of crises across developing countries. On average, developed countries suffer a banking crisis every 40 years, and Sweden is average in this regard. Some countries are much more crisis-prone. The United Kingdom and the uh, United States suffer a crisis every 15 years or so. Now, this means that banking regulations need to be tailored to the unique national characteristics of each country. However... The reason for the work of the Basel Committee is that banking is international, so that we also need international regulations, and to avoid the regulatory arbitrage, the regulations need to be uniform. Now, this creates one of the dilemmas that is so common in the world of regulation, and is one of the key reasons why the job of the Basel Committee is so difficult. Now, historically, the committee has had considerable success. A key motivation for Basel I was the heterogeneity in capital regulation in the early 1980s when Japanese banks had a lot lower capital than banks elsewhere and therefore could use more leverage to expand, and it seemed at the time they were taking over the world. Not surprisingly, their Western rivals got upset and were lobbying to reduce their capital levels to those of Japan. Basel I was successful in halting this erosion of capital standards worldwide. The question is, will Basel III be seen as similarly successful in meeting his stated objectives? Now, it is a significant improvement over his predecessor. And to me, the biggest improvement is in the emphasis on core equity and the introduction of the joint leverage ratios. 
Now, we still, of course, have disagreements as to the levels of capital, but they reflect the different strengths of the banking system in the various countries and the willingness to consider taxpayers' money as yet another form of bank capital. The introduction of the liquidity requirements Stefan mentioned is welcome, but I sometimes wonder if it wouldn't have been better to learn better the lessons of Basel II capital and minimize the scope for manipulation. I do worry when regulations give birth to a new financial practices, as we are now seeing so extensively in the liquidity space. After all, it was capital structure optimization and hybrid instruments that undermined the Basel II ratios. Now, in some places, Basel III is a step backwards, as in how market risk is calculated. Our research at the Systemic Risk Center suggests that under the current proposals, market risk will be measured more inaccurately than in Basel II, but also giving banks more scope for the manipulation of the measurements. Now, furthermore, the growth in complexity is a worry. The number of pages in Basel I was about 30, and Basel III about 350, and I read them all at the time. Depending on how one counts, Basel III exceeds exceeds 500,000 pages. So a number of different working documents that one sort of has to keep track of. And I think very few people will end up reading the whole thing. And on current trend, Basel IV will be at least a few thousands, if not more. Now, when this gets translated into national rule books, this number multiplies rapidly. Now, Trying to specify regulations on risk-taking in such minute detail might just end up creating a large number of loopholes. I would not be surprised if bankers just read Basel III as a manual for taking risk. Now, there is a concern echoed by an LSE professor in 1945, Friedrich Hayek, who wrote a seminal piece called The Use of Knowledge in Society, about why central planning of economies does not work. His point at the time was that it is impossible to aggregate local economic knowledge so that a handful of central planners could efficiently organize the economy. A corollary to Hayek's point is that the regulators cannot sensibly aggregate all the local risk-taking into a set of simple metrics, be the value at risk or risk-weighted assets. It is in risk I think, where the committee faces a thorny logical problem. If you want regulations to be risk-sensitive, it is um, illogical for banks to reach different conclusions on the risk of the same portfolio, a point Stefan just mentioned a few minutes ago. It is therefore important that risk be harmonized across banks, and the committee has, in other forums, publicly expressed concerns about exactly this. The problem is that the harmonization of risk forecast methods is strongly pro-cyclical, increasing the frequency and severity of banking crisis. Ultimately, the problem with risk-based regulation is that risk cannot be accurately measured. Any firm-wide risk number, such as value at risk, resembles nothing more than a random number. More worryingly, risk that is measured tends to be negatively correlated with the actual underlying non-measurable risk. Therefore, by regulating with risk measures, we create procyclicality. Now, this is a point well made by the former head of the BIS, Andrew Crockett, who said, 
The received wisdom is that risk increases in recessions and falls in booms. In contrast, it may be more helpful to think of risk as increasing during upswings as financial imbalances build up and materializing in recessions. Now, my last concern today is about the lack of transparency in the regulatory process. We do not really know who sits at the table, and there seems to be little or no involvement from anybody outside of the regulatory banking complex. While banking, regulate, while banking regulations affect every part of society, society seems to be given little room to influence the process decided in smoke-filled rooms in Basel. However, it is easy to criticize. The Basel process needs to reconcile very different views and try to create harmonious regulations for very different banking systems. The overall thrust of the process is very positive, and while there are many areas that could be done better, the opposite is true, and the direction is correct. The job of the Basel Committee is important. It is the only game in town, and given all the constraints, we will never get anyways what we economists would call optimal regulation. With this, I want to thank Stefan for joining us here tonight. Thank you very much, Stefan. Do you want a, do you want a quick yeah. response? No, a few, a few. I mean, the, the, the whole issue of procyclicality is, is kind of a it's, it's a perennial issue that has been with us for a long, 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 long time, and and it's uh, it, it, it's hard to it, it's hard to deal with. One way of dealing with it is to make sure that banks have more capital than they had in the past, because then at least in the downturn, you you can you can manage the downturn more more easily compared to if there is not not enough uh, uh, not enough capital. On the whole issue of risk weights, uh, the issue is what to what, what to do, uh, and uh, and one can uh, one can do that in many many different uh, di- different ways. One way of dealing with it would be to put in constraints on the type of models banks are allowed to use. Another way of doing it would be would be to put in floors uh, so that so that you can go below. X, uh, but it's uh, too early to tell which way uh, which way we will uh, go. When it comes to transparency, uh, we're working on that, and transparency uh, has increased and increased, in my view, substantially over time. And and when it comes to these documents that we produce, and uh, we produce hundreds and hundreds of pages, we can argue whether that's a good thing or not a good thing. Uh, but the vast majority of those documents are actually publicly available uh, at one one stage or uh, or another. They are not always uh, the clearest of documents that you can find, uh, but sometimes you have to be a, va- a bit vague to get to a compromise. Thank you very much. Now we can turn to questions and. While you're all thinking of questions, I've got one in a sense that I'm semi-dying to ask, which is that the, the criticism that different banks assess RWAs separately in different ways is absolutely just. But an awful lot of the criticism of RWAs or risk weighting is that they are sort of fixed independent of context and that they were certainly initially fixed uh, with a certain political content. Uh, I note particularly the zero risk weighting for all OECD government debt in a world in which uh, certain uh, events of recent years makes that seem to be a bit odd. 
And the relativity, for example, of the risk weighting of mortgage debt as compared to other lending to the private sector bears much more to a rather arbitrary political choice than to any scientific measurement of what the effective risks to banks historically have been. So that I mean, it's not just that banks treat risk weights differently, it's that the, in, the initial sort of choice of what the risk weights are and their constancy over time, irrespective of what's going on, strikes observers as rather odd. Well, this is what it, what it took to get to a negotiated solution on how to do this. And, and that means that there are always elements of, let me call it, national interest in one form or, or the other. Uh, and and that, that produces uh, some oddities, so to speak, from time to time. And it's, uh, one, one issue is the whole issue of sovereigns, which is being discussed uh, today. And, uh, and, and, and it probably will take, uh, take many years for the committee to, to, to look, into that, look into that issue again. So you have a point in the sense that this is not, uh, this is not a 100% pure actuarial approach to risk. There are other elements to it as well, but that what it, that's basically what it takes to get to a global agreement. So, questions over. The first one over there. There's a mic coming. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Governor, when you've completed the huge task of re-regulating the banking system, don't you think that you will shift risky behavior from the banking system elsewhere into the financial system, what the governor here, the Bank of England here has called shadow banking. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? And who will go about regulating that shadow banking system when you've finished regulating the banks? Thank you. Um, it, all, it, it all depends, because if you tighten the rules on the bank side, then some of the business is likely to move uh, elsewhere. But the key to it, then, is to make sure that it doesn't sort of come back to the banks through the back door in one way or the other. And from the Basel Committee's perspective, the way we have dealt with the whole concept or issue of shadow banking is to make sure that if banks lend to shadow banks, if I express it that way, then the capital requirements have to be high enough uh, so that you don't end up with a situation which has happened many, many times in the past that you think that the whole thing is outside the banking sector. But when things go wrong, then all of a sudden everything kind of feeds back into the banking sector in one, one form or the other. But this doesn't really mean that they, 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 there, may, there may well be financial sector activities that produce uh, good value for society uh, despite the fact that uh, they are not on the books of the banks. Now I get it. Ah, at the back. Hello. I'd like to have a question about cocoa bonds. Um, as you may know, one way for banks to manage the costs of increased capital ratios is to issue subordinated debts, such as contingent convertible or contingent capital bonds. These innovative new products allow banks to... Uh, issue debt in a way that can manage their capital ratios. Can you tell us a bit about the, the Basel Committee's um, discussions about how cocoa bonds could be included as part of the capital ratio levels, how they came about? 
No, we're not really discussing dis including cocos as part of capital. I mean, the, the banks usually talk about it that way. Cocos you are supposed to use on top of the capital that you have. You use cocos to, to make sure that you never have to deal with the supervisors. Uh, because if you do cocos as a completely a private sector undertaking, then you can put your own capital ratio on whatever level you like. And if you put it high enough, then it ensures that you never have to deal with the supervisors, or at least it takes much, much longer than otherwise. And so there are kind of cocos and cocos when it comes to how to, uh, how to do, the, do this. But this is my view when it comes to how you deal with cocos. On top of this, and this is where it gets, actually, of course, quite complicated, uh, once we get into the whole issue of GLAC, and that's a few years down the road, that's bail-inable debt in one, uh, in, in one way or the other, and we'll see how to, how to do this. And essentially what the whole issue is all about is how to structure the liability side of a, of a bank in a way that, that makes, uh, makes sense. But I do think, though, what is very, very important here is to stick to the whole concept, concept, concept of core equity tier one, and COCOs are not core equity tier one. In the red shirt. Thank you. I was just wondering if I could go back to your comment about core tier one equity. From that, what do you think about the EU Commission's decision to water down CID4 and allow more things to count as equity? I'm thinking of hybrid capital. And what do you think about the issues surrounding double counting? Well, uh, we'll see. As I said, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll publish the, the EU uh, Basel III assessment in the course of uh, in, in the course of the fall. So I, I wouldn't really want to opine on that uh, now. Once the assessment is done, uh, we'll see where they end up. Just in front. Thank you. You mentioned making sure that uh, risks from the shadow banking sector don't flow back into the banking sector. Are you trying to do that also through the net stable funding ratio? No, not really. The, NSF, the, the NSFR is just, as I said, trying to, to put a, a, a requirement that you have to have a portfolio which is more matched than some of these portfolios used to, uh, used to, in the, used to be in the, in, in the past. Uh, since the Basel III framework is essentially about risk management and making sure that we don't get the frequency and the depth crisis we have. Um, do you mind talking for a minute about uh, the experience in Sweden post-crisis where you have been in you know, various debates with the government, etc., about whether or not there are issues in the Swedish domestic context, etc.? So basically much of that discussion has been over and above the Basel III framework, where the Swedish banks, on, apart from one parameter, are reasonably compliant. So can you use that as an example to illustrate the limits of what Basel III can achieve and the challenges that uh, supervisors, regulators, and central bankers face over and above that? Well, that brings, in, that, that brings us into maybe a kind of a different lecture, because that's dealing with this old, but now with modern words, the concept of macroprudential supervision and who's supposed to say no and for what reason and uh, do you say no early enough uh, in order to ensure that the system stays uh, safe, and, safe and stable. But then we're getting into a whole bunch of issues that go way beyond uh, Basel III. The only thing that kind of touches on on the issue that you're raising here is uh, the, the countercyclical capital buffer. 
And the countercyclical capital buffer is a nice tool in the sense that it increases the capital that the banks need to hold, but you cannot really, or the, the now let me put it this way, the countercyclical capital buffer doesn't really work if you want to use it, for example, in order to, to avoid households borrowing too much when they, when they do mortgages, and that's because the countercyclical capital buffer will only produce an increase in the mortgage rate of, let's say, 20, 25 basis points. So if households are borrowing too much, you need to go beyond actually what is in, in, in Basel III to get a handle on that. Up at the top. Uh, on the subject of capital requirements, could you speak a little bit about the capital requirement ratio itself, uh, the idea behind bringing down the hammer in, in terms of higher capital requirements would be to, to, raise, to, to have that buffer, but banks could also just decrease loans. And could you, could you speak to, the, to that fact, especially in the context right now of Europe, where the, the issue is really that there's a decrease in lending? Could you speak to the issue of where these, are, these high capital requirement ratios might hinder that? Or if, if, if there is any type of, of um, you know, sort of, what do you call that, sort of a trade-off? Okay, this, the, the, issue, the issue you're raising is really how to get from A to B in an orderly way and what happens in the economy in the, in the, in, in, in the meantime. And in order to deal with that issue, the already when, when, when Basel III was, uh, was first announced back in 2010, we talked about very long adjustment periods. So we're talking about 18, 19, uh, and, and that means that banks have had ample of time to adjust to the, new, uh, to the new capital ratios. But in addition to that, if you have a problem with, with, with capital in the banks, well, then first best is to recapitalize the banks, regardless of Basel III. Another up there. Thank you. I've got uh, three uh, quick questions. The first one is, uh, as you stated in, the, in your presentation, uh, that... Uh, the implementation part was a major issue. Um, on the governance part, what has been the progress on, on, your, uh, um, on your observation about uh, the uh, real implement? Because in the crisis, on the subtler level, it was the governance that caused the whole, whole issue. What has been the progress on that? That's number one. Number two, uh, one of the criticisms that Basel III has uh, come is that, I mean, each country are not on the same economic framework. There are many countries which need their priorities on growth, employment. And there, when you are tying up a lot of capital in, the, uh, in, the, in terms of the Taiwan capital and then the total capital and then the liquidity uh, maintenance, then it is really keeping a pressure on the growth. Yeah, it is not, it is, it is not uh, supporting that. Try uh, to come to a conclusion or a yeah, question. That's it, yeah, yeah. Well, when it comes to implementation, as I tried to, to, sh to show to you, there is an implementation process going on, and it's a transparent process, and, and it's easier today than in the past to keep track of what countries are actually doing or, or not, not doing. When it comes to governance, then that's more dealing with uh, what's in the Basel core principles for supervision and how you, how you run, run, run banks. That's not so much dealing with the technicalities of, of, of Basel, uh, Basel III. And then on the third issue of, 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 of capital, this is a perennial discussion about the short run versus the long run. 
And if we look at the numbers, if you look at the capital numbers that, that, that we ended up with, if I put it that way, as a, a, during Basel II, if you take a longer time perspective, the, 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 and if I express it in terms of the leverage ratio, the leverage of banks before, shortly before things started, uh, fall, started falling apart was very, very low in a historic perspective. Because if you have a leverage ratio of, let's say, 1%, there is not much capital in those banks. So there was a need, actually, to increase capital in the banks in one, uh, one way or the other. But when you do that, nothing in life is for free. So you always have this trade-off between the, the short run and, uh, and, um, and, and the long run. I thought that was a really interesting talk, but uh, there are two issues that others have raised that I would be very much welcome hearing your take on. The first is, it is my and many other people's experience, particularly in ecology, that more complicated things are more fragile, and that essentially is the main theme of Andy Haldane's Dog and the Frisbee. And I wonder what you think of that, and secondly, if I could put on top of it I don't know whether you've read the essay that Benjamin Friedman wrote a couple of years ago in which he made an attempt to assess the growth of, as it were, rent-taking within the system. He tried to make an estimate of the total cost of running the American banking system as a ratio to all profits earned in America and showed that from 30 years ago to 15 years ago it doubled and then it was in the way to doubling again before it fell apart. And he basically said, what we want is a fundamental reappraisal of how we allocate capital efficiently in a free market, which doesn't have a lot of relevance to much of these fancy instruments. I hope you don't think that's a silly question, but I'd love to hear the answer. No, not at all, not at all, Lord made very deep uh, questions, and uh, is complicated more fragile? Well, banks do complicated things. Banking is much, much more complicated today than it was in the past. And what we try to do is to come up with a kind of a compromise in the sense that we say, okay, we have the system with risk weights. Uh, many parts of that system are quite complicated, particularly when you get into future for, futures forwards options, uh, on balance sheet, off balance sheets, derivatives in different shapes and, and uh, shape, shapes and forms. But in order to ensure that uh, to, to buy a bit of insurance, if I express it that way, then we are working, as I explained, towards a system where also there will be a leverage ratio and uh, a leverage ratio that acts as a backstop. And just for the sake of the argument, let's assume that we get the risk weights totally wrong. Then you still would have a leverage ratio which uh, makes it impossible to expand the balance sheet of a bank in, 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 in defin indefinitely. Now, the counter-argument to using a leverage ratio is to say, well, since the leverage ratio doesn't distinguish between different types of risks, uh, then, uh, then, then you can you can sort of maximize the size of your balance sheet uh, by by just running in one direction and, and ending up holding only one, let's say, for the sake of the argument, one type of asset. So, 
both, both ways of doing it have their pros and cons, and what we try to do is to find a reasonable balance between, uh, between the two. Uh, the other question when it comes to rent-seeking in the banking sector and if there are other ways of, of uh, uh, finding a model of channeling savings to investments in society, because that's ultimate, ultimately what that is all about. Well, that's way above uh, the level of the Basel Committee, since uh, we deal with the plumbing in the present state of the world. All right, I'm going to take three more questions. One, two, and then three there. That, and that's going to be the last question. Hello. Um, you mentioned GLAC and how it might take a year or more to kind of get a global agreement on it. Mark Carney's been quite specific that he wants uh, an agreement by the uh, Brisbane G20 meeting. I think that's October, November. So is he going to sort of have to fly out there empty-handed and tell the leaders he doesn't have anything? No, no, no. We're talking, I think, about one and the, one, one and the same thing because it's one thing to come to an agreement. It's a different thing to do all the technical work so that you actually can implement implement something. I mean, similarly, when we work within the Basel Committee, we can come to an agreement in broad terms on something, uh, but then it takes a while to actually write up, unfortunately, nowadays, those 500 pages called the rules text. So, and, and as, as always, when you do these things, uh, a lot of it, uh, the, devil is, uh, the devil is in the detail. And you have, particularly when, when you talk about GLAC, for example, then actually the issue is um, how to define the pecking order uh, when things go badly. And uh, that will require a bit of technical work, actually, to do, uh, to do that. But first, uh, there is a need for a global... Uh, agreement at the political level, and, and if once that's there, then uh, then the technicians can 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 deal with the, the technical aspects of it, so that you can produce something which is uh, technically uh, full. Has Basel three led to an increase in the risk weightings on SME lending? And uh, related to that, has does Basel three? lead to a reduction in SME lending, all other things being equal? Well, that I cannot say at this juncture, because then you would have to look at what happens in individual, in, in individual countries. SME lending seems to be a perennial issue. I've, I've been dealing with this as long as I have been dealing with the banking sector, either at the global level or domestically in my own, or in, in, in my own country. The whole issue of risk weights is on the table, and we will probably we will have to discuss that for many years. Because what I have talked about here, when it comes to Basel III, is really levels of capital, how you define the different buffers, how these different measures that I've talked about relate uh, to each other, and how you put the system uh, together. And that's fairly independent on, let's say, risk weights to particularly SM, SMEs. That's a different type of issue. Yes, hello. Uh, John Algar from uh, Yuri Week. Um, Governor, I just wanted to follow up on a part of Professor Goodhart's question regarding risk rating of sovereign bonds. Um, I was struck by a comment in your response that the committee's approach is not 100% actorial, so it's not 100% scientific. So I guess that leads to the question as, as what you see the committee's principal political obstacles, both at a sovereign and supra-sovereign level, 
to implementing bank risk weightings towards government bonds that are scientifically optimal? Well, in the real world, there are many countries and many different views, and then you discuss, and you discuss for years and years. As I, as I mentioned when I talked about the LCR, it took 40 years of conversations before we actually ended up with an LCR. So there is no such a thing as absolute purity when it comes to doing these things, because there are different interests, as always, uh, when, when, when you talk about things at the global global level, and then you have to do do your best to get, get to a a negotiated agreement, because to have that kind of an agreement is probably better for the world compared to having nothing at all. There may be no such thing as absolute purity, but you came very close to absolute transparency. So, um, and, and you've gone on answering questions for a very long time, um, brilliantly so. So may we thank uh, Stefan again for uh, an excellent evening. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.